Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 7th, 2021. And as I was uh, perusing the headlines today, I noticed that uh, the fashion company, the clothing branding company Chanel is in the news. Uh, according to the Washington Post, people are regretting spending $800, which seems an awful lot of money, on a Chanel advent calendar featuring stickers and a dust bag. That seems a rather hefty sum to spend on stickers and a dust bag. Um, there's backlash everywhere on these stickers and dust bags against uh, Chanel. Of course, the brand is most famously associated with the number five perfume that many of you uh, may be wearing and many of you will have also smelt. Uh, social media is, of course, inevitably outraged by this $800 um advent bag i don't exactly know what uh, advent calendar i'm not sure what an advent calendar is but whatever it is it's upsetting people um chanel as a company continues to prosper for people watching here we have an image of their website it's a multi-billion dollar uh, business selling high fashion jewelry watches eyewear fragrance makeup skin care um and it's something that's very much associated with image in the world today. Here we have images of actresses, of uh, not just of women, of men, uh, Pharrell Williams, uh, heavily tattooed characters uh, associated with Chanel. Uh, here we have uh, Pharrell Williams again. Uh, there are apparently Chanel muses, one of which is Kristen uh, Mc. Menemy, uh, and many other images about Chanel. They're very much a successful business in the branding area of our uh, economy. Of course, Chanel was named after a, a French woman called Coco Chanel, and she is indeed the subject uh, of our uh, show today. Uh, I have the author of a new novel about Chanel uh, called Coco at the Ritz. It's a novel based on the controversies of uh, Coco Chanel's uh, war years. Her name is Joya Deliberto, and she is joining me from Chicago. Uh, Joya, before we talk about um, Coco at the Ritz, uh, am I being fair about Chanel as a company today? How influential is it as a company, both in economic and cultural terms? I think it's very influential. It still stands for chic and elegance. It uh, is what's known as a brand of soul in that it transcends the life and ideas and even aesthetic of the founder to stand for something on its own. And I think you have to make a separation though between Chanel the brand and Chanel the person, the historical figure. 
the Chanel, the historical figure, is the woman who fascinates me and the woman that I wrote about. Yeah, and this historical figure is, whether you like it or not, whether you like her or not, she is fascinating, a remarkable life. She lived a long time, uh, many years, many lovers, many, many controversies. What is it particularly about Chanel um, Joya that, uh, that, that encouraged you to write this book, Coco at the Ritz? You're noted as a biographer as much as a novelist. Uh, you've written on Diane Von, you, you wrote a, a biography, a, an acclaimed biography of, of Diane Von Furstenberg, um, of Hemingway's first wife, uh, but you've also written a number of novels. So you're familiar both in the, the, the fiction and non-fiction form. Yes, and I would have written this story as a non-fiction book had the material been there, but there wasn't enough material to write a non-fiction book. I'd always been fascinated by Coco Chanel. I think she's one of the most intriguing figures of the early 20th century. And in fact, I wrote another novel about her in 2006 that was set in 1919 after the First World War. And while I was researching that book, I discovered that Chanel had been arrested and interrogated for a couple of hours by the French forces of the interior, the loose band of resistance fighters, soldiers, and ordinary citizens who'd taken up arms in the wake of the liberation of Paris. And nobody knows what happened. She was released, but no one knows why. No one knows where she was taken. The, there were no records, as there would have been in a regular official court case. Um, she never talked about it. She paid people to keep her out of their memoirs. So the only way to approach the story, which I thought was the most fascinating moment in her reading life, this most famous woman in Paris getting carted off in a Jeep to some undisclosed location to be interrogated by two guys. And the only way you could do it was imaginatively because there were just no records, nothing there. Uh, that is the, the narrative in the book, Coco at the Ritz. It's a fictional recreation of Coco Chanel's arrest and interrogation at the hands of the Free French. What was it in uh, September 1944? What, what year was it? Uh, it was, what... Oh, it was 1944, and the biographies differ on whether it was August or September. So even the date that she was picked up was not certain, but it was around that time. It was definitely after the liberation of Paris when the Free French were going around arresting women who had slept with Germans and sometimes whom they even just suspected of sleeping with Germans and shaving their heads and sometimes stripping them and parading them naked through the streets. And these were the people that snatched Chanel from the Ritz Hotel in Paris and took her away. Are you making money? But are you not sure you're doing all the right things with it? Are you investing it correctly? Are you saving it? Or are you somehow losing it? Is it falling between the cracks in your life. Does money stuff stress you out? It certainly stresses me out, and I'm sure it stresses out all of my listeners. Are you just winging it with your finances? I am, you probably are, and most of us do, because that is the nature of most of our financial self-management. If any of those things are true, 
you've got to try Facebook. If any of those things are true, you've got to try Playbook, the app for growing your own money. For the average user, Playbook helps boost their net worth by over $1.3 million. Yes, that's $1.3 million. There's no paperwork with Playbook. You just connect your own bank accounts and Playbook builds a plan to maximize your own tax advantages. Playbook tells you which tax-advantaged accounts you need, how much money to put into each of them, and even automates these processes for you. Money stuff can be stressful, we all know that, but Playbook makes it easy to review your own financial plan, track your own financial progress, and make changes at any time you want. Plus, it's all automated. Once your financial plan is in motion, Playbook is on it. They keep an eye on all your finances and adjust your plan accordingly. It's rare, very, very rare, that a finance app thinks about your finances as a whole. That's your all your finances, your taxes, your savings, and all your life financial goals. Whether it's a wedding, a family trip, donating to charity, or the fire lifestyle, Playbook helps you get there faster. So what's my favorite Playbook feature? I really like the way in which the app shows me all my accounts, all my goals, and all my progress in a single place instead of having to log on to 10 different confusing finance apps. Uh, Automatica contribution to my Roth IRA and travel fund uh, every month. The Playbook Impact. It tracks and predicts how old I'll be when I can stop working forever. So get on the road to financial freedom go to helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on. And with my unique link, helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on, you get a free playbook impact. It predicts how much your net worth could grow if you start today. Helloplaybook.com forward slash keen on playbook to financial freedom and beyond. Joy, how much of the incentive to write this book was driven by your distaste for Chanel's behavior during the war? We've had a number of shows about the Second World War and particularly women in the Second World War. We had uh, Judy Battalion on the show about uh, Jewish female resistance to the Germans. They, of course, weren't wearing Chanel gear, no little black dresses in terms of fighting the SS. We also had um, Wendy Lau, a very distinguished American historian on the show, who wrote a wonderful book, a very moving book called The Ravine, about the execution of a woman and a young boy in the Ukraine. 
again, this woman wasn't wearing a, a Chanel little black dress. How much of um, how much of Chanel? Certainly, whether or not she was a, a Nazi collaborator is open to argument. But she clearly was someone who um, fraternized with the Germans. She had a German lover and. Uh, her, her war years were not morally distinguished. Uh, were you shocked by that? Was that distasteful to you? Yes, I was completely shocked and horrified by it. And I started out just being completely, totally appalled. And um, But my views became more complicated as I looked at it more closely. And one of the things that I wanted to explore in this book was the ambiguities of wartime morality. Um, you know, Andre Gide said that most people during the Paris occupation were like old battered shoes floating through murky waters, just trying to survive. And the occupation offers this stark contrast between good and evil. Yet few people were really heroes of resistance or villains of collaboration. Most people were you know, somewhere in between. And even in Chanel's own circle, you have Jean Cocteau on one side who was fraternizing with the Germans, though he was the one who started the petition to save their mutual friend, Max Jacob, the poet. But then on the other, you have her friend, Pierre Reverdy, who just planted his flag in the sand for the resistance and worked for the resistance. And then in between, Misia Serre, her friend, who was very outraged by Chanel's behavior with Spots von Dinklage, her Nazi lover, but still went along with it. So I, there is this continuum of behavior that I wanted to look at closely. And, and Chanel and her world provided that opportunity. And also it was a chance to look at how one woman, granted one of the most famous women in Paris, how one woman made certain choices and what the consequences of those choices were to herself and to others. Because we all wonder how we would act, how we would behave, what would we have done? How much of your novel is, is a kind of polemic um in reaction to Hal Vaughan's Sleeping with the Enemy, his very critical uh, biography of, 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 of Chanel's behavior during the war. Were you influenced by that or is it kind of incidental or irrelevant in terms of your book? Well, no, of course I read it and I was grateful that he had access to those unclassified but do you think he was a bit harsh for one? I haven't, to be honest, I haven't read his book. I've only read reviews of the book. Well, it, it wasn't very nuanced. The documents were real, but the schemes that they described remained murky. So, um, and I, I wasn't interested at all in writing a polemic. My intention was to write a novel that was, that would explore character and personality and um, some sense of what it meant to live through the occupation. And, and a, also a vision of Chanel as a person who made some really bad choices and what the consequences of those choices were. 
So I approached it from a literary sense, not at all. It was not at all polemic, even though I started out being really horrified. I became much more interested in her as a literary character as the process of writing the book went on. But Joy, do you think it's possible to write a book about somebody like Coco Chanel, who in some people's minds was a Nazi collaborator, without being in in a sense political? Because people are going to pick this book up. It's it's beautifully written. You're getting into the head of Chanel. But inevitably, people are going to be either sympathetic or hateful to this woman. As you say, we all wonder how we'd behave. Camus, mm-hmm. Gide, uh, French writers throughout the 20th century made an industry in writing about this stuff, particularly given the ambiguity of the of the of the Pétain years and the Nazi occupation right. of France. You, you unavoidably uh, are are stepping into political waters, aren't you, with this kind of book? Well, yes, but I think that most people will not like Chanel when they finish my book, but they will be fascinated by her and interested in her choices and in the journey that she made. But I don't, I don't think she comes out as likable, and I don't think um, you come away from the book feeling better about her and what she did. But I, I mean, if it's political in the sense that I think the Nazis were you know, horrible and I well, think, that kind of goes without saying right but also also it, she kind of stands for France you know she kind of epitomizes in the ambiguity and the moral ambiguity yeah. and uncertainty and weakness of France right right she's kind of an anti-Marianne you know the French symbol for um, liberty equality and freedom she's the opposite of that you know she stands for the bad values. Um, so I don't. I don't think that anybody is going to read this book and think that I have excused her behavior at all or whitewashed her. In any no, way. I'm certainly not saying that. But I think people will pick up this book and, as you say, come away either with more or less sympathy with Chanel because this is not a book about fashion. This no. is not a book about Chanel number no. five or image. This is a book about collaboration with perhaps the, the most mm. evil regime in, in human history. Um, Joy, we're going to take a break for a moment and then we're going to come back and I want to talk specifically about um, Chanel's war years, about what she did and, and what the controversy is. So stay with us. We'll be back in a couple of seconds. All right. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, If you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, If you follow me on Twitter at 
AJ Keen. You can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Kino. We are back with Joya Diliberto, the uh, author of a, an intriguing new novel about Coco Chanel, uh, Chanel's uh, war years uh, in Paris uh, in the 1940s, Can, uh, Coco uh, at the Ritz. Um, we need to remember, of course, that um, Coco Chanel was an incredibly influential figure. Uh, Time magazine indeed included her as one of the hundred most important people in the century. So her life in the war counted. She wasn't just an ordinary person. Uh, Joya, very briefly, tell me the story of Chanel's war. What happened and why did she end up in Paris at the Ritz? Well, she closed her fashion house in 1939 before war. And she fled Paris with thousands of other Parisians and went to her nephew's house in the countryside. And while she was there, she and her nephew, Andre Palas's wife and children, learned that he had been taken a German prisoner of war. He was in the army. And so she went back to Paris to see what she could do about getting him released. And when she got to the Ritz, where she lived, basically. She had an apartment across the street above her her store, um, Cambon, 31 Rue Cambon, but she basically lived at the Ritz. She slept at the Ritz. And there was a giant swastika hanging over the door, and she discovered that her suite had been confiscated by the Germans, and she was given two small rooms on the French side of the hotel, which was not the most desirable side of the hotel. And she stayed. Um, again, you know, a, a woman who wasn't so opportunistic might have thought, you know, this isn't so great. I'm going to go to my country house and wait it out. But she moved in to the Ritz, the German-occupied Ritz. And at some point, she encountered Spots van Dinklage, who she had probably met before the war. He had been an embassy attaché, which was kind of a cover for his activities. He worked for the Abwehr. And um, she began an affair with him. And again, another, he was 13 years her junior. He was very handsome and sophisticated and he fit very elegantly into her social world. But another woman who wasn't so opportunistic would have thought, I don't care, I'm lonely and he's fantastic looking, but I'm gonna find another boyfriend. But many Yeah, she- you mentioned uh, he worked for, he, he worked for the, um, the, the, the security service. Yes. Uh, which basically was an SS man. Is that fair? Well, not really, because um, in fact, his boss in the ad where um, Canaris was executed for being part of the plot to assassinate Hitler towards the end of the war after Chanel had taken up with spots. So, I, you know, 
how much did he did the abware and the abware was in place before hitler took mm. power so it wasn't the ss but they probably worked with the ss and right. spice's activities also remain very murky yeah, and he's an interesting character. I was read—I didn't know much about him, but he was also involved in the um, in, in the trial over the uh, the the murder of Rosa Luxemburg after the First World War. So he was a German—he was a German aristocrat, a very handsome yeah. German aristocrat who probably wasn't a hardcore Nazi, but certainly was a, a fellow traveler in some way. Right. right, was certainly a member of the party and so on. So you know, he might not have been a cold-blooded killer. But, and he might not even, you know, who, no one really knows to what extent Chanel believed in Nazi ideology or if at all, or even her boyfriend, Spots. He, um, Chanel though, sort of seemed to gravitate towards these types. Um, mm -hmm. She was friendly with uh, uh, the, uh, the second Duke of w Westminster, a man called Hugh Richard Arthur Grosvenor, otherwise known to his friends as Bendor, another of her many lovers, notorious anti-Semite, sort of uh, associated with the Duke of Windsor as well. Was there something about Chanel that resulted in her gravitating towards these right-wing aristocrats who often hated the Jews? Yes, and she's on record making some very ugly anti-Semitic remarks. It's generally understood that Chanel was anti-Semitic and that she grew up poor, her parents were poor, her mother died when she was 12 and she ended up in a convent orphanage where she probably heard a lot of anti-Semitic remarks. So I'm not sure if that's, uh, an, not everyone who, who grows up poor becomes an anti-Semite, do they, no, Joy? No, of course not, that's not what I meant. But growing up in this convent in rural France, um, you know, she probably was exposed to a lot of anti-Semitic ideas. Um, you know, we've all, we all remember the Dreyfus case. And, um, you know, so the, it, it, was, it was part of her upbringing, I think. And it was this kind of reflexive, um, just automatic anti-Semitism. And she was, intent on making something of herself and she always gravitated towards people in power and she never could get enough you know she could never get enough power enough money enough fame it was never enough enough what do you enough. think drove her you, you, you your your novel is a, in in a way a psychological you get into her head was she greedy for power for virtue for fame uh yes i think all those things um i think she was she was greedy to create herself into somebody who mattered. And the fact that she did it against all odds, France was not a society that was conducive to upward mobility. And she did it at a time when women had no status. Women in France didn't even get the right to vote until July 1944. So her achievement was astounding, but it's of course, tainted, tarnished by the way she behaved during the war. Um, but I think that she she was always wanting more and more and more as if to convince herself that she was no longer the poor, loveless orphan that she had started out as. 
Joy, you mentioned her attitude towards uh, the Jews. One irony is that her co-founder uh, at Chanel was a Jew, Pierre yeah. Wertheimer. Um, talk a little bit about him and their founding of this company and then their falling out. Well, it's really interesting. And again, this is another chance to think about the moral ambiguities of all of this because she uh, met him in the early 20s. He owned the most successful perfume business in France. And she had, with a chemist, invented Chanel Number no. 5. And Pierre Wertheimer bought it, agreed to, bought her comp the perfume part of her company, let her keep the fashion. And it was his business brilliance that made it the success that it was. Um, he gave her 10% of the profits. He kept eight, 80 and another investor had 10. And she agreed to that because at the time, what she cared about was the fashion and he let her keep the fashion. And she thought he can have the perfume. And then the perfume became this global sensation. And once that happened, she wanted more. And she started suing him and there were lawsuits for 20 years. And then the occupation comes along and the Nazis are seizing Jewish businesses. And she sees this as her opportunity to get her company back. So she goes to the Gestapo and the Wertheimers, meanwhile, were safe in New York. They had taken the formula for Chanel Number no. 5 with them. And they had also managed to um, smuggle out of France some large quantities of jasmine extract, which is a key ingredient of Chanel Number no. 5. And they were manufacturing it out of a processing plant in Hoboken, New Jersey. And so she went to the Gestapo and said, my company was owned by these Jews who have left, they've abandoned the company. I'm a Christian French woman, you should give it back to me. But the Wertheimers outsmarted her. They arranged to have their shares, their 80% shares, transferred to a French Christian businessman named Felix Amio, who made airplanes for the Germans. And the quid pro quo here was that when, if the Allies won, that Amio would return the shares to the Wertheimers and then they would vouch for him. So what you have here is the Wertheimers, Jews, collaborating with the collaborator who's making airplanes for the Germans. So nobody is morally pure here at all. Certainly wasn't any of their, to, to borrow a term from Winston Churchill, any of their finest hours. And of course, Winston is involved, as he seems to be involved in every story about the Second World War, because Coco knew Winston. And there seems to be an interesting connection between the two. Uh, how does Winston get involved in Coco's story, uh, uh, Joya? Well, when Coco was dating the Duke of Westminster, he got to know Churchill. And Churchill was charmed by Is it the notorious Bendor? The notorious Bendor. And Churchill was charmed by Coco. And he, you know, because she was well, Who wouldn't be charmed by Coco? I mean, she was a very beautiful, charming woman, right? Yeah, she exactly. she was the, the sort of the, the original platonic version of, of, of the French, the exquisite French woman. Right. And she was an independent woman. She had a business. She had created, she was a creator and an innovator. She wasn't 
like all these silly aristocratic women he knew who did nothing but get drunk and sleep with other people's husbands. She was a real strong figure in her own right. And so he was charmed by her and they had a real friendship and they would see each other on weekends, country house weekends. And um, in fact, they had dinner right before the war. He went to her atelier and had dinner with her one night. So what about Chanel's war? Uh, there was uh, rumors that um, that she was working as a spy for the Germans. Do you believe she was? And what does your novel suggest about that? Well... Uh, and, and, and the rumors were known as Operation Modelhut. Modelhut, which means fashion hat in German. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't, she was trying to broker a separate piece. He was going to be this. Well, it was a Ger I mean, Joy, well, that was a German piece. It wasn't really no. a piece, was it? No, she was. She won. No, she was not. She wasn't interested in Germany succeeding. She wanted to pair. She wanted France back for France, but this was her arrogance that she thought because she knew Churchill, she thought if she could get to Churchill. She could talk to, I mean, it was crazy. It was insane. But she had this idea that if she could talk to Churchill, she could persuade him to start negotiations to negotiate a peace that, would, that everybody could live with, the Germans and the French. But it wasn't that she wanted to convince Winston to surrender to Hitler. No, it was nothing like that. Um, so she went to... Berlin and met with Walter Schellenberg, who was the um, the chief of foreign military intelligence, and he uh, he authorized this crazy, insane mission. And she went to Madrid, where she was supposed to meet Churchill, who was on his way home from the Tehran conference, but. Churchill got sick, so instead of stopping in Madrid, he went back to London and the whole thing fell apart. But it wasn't a case of Chanel wanting to help the Germans win. It wasn't that at all. It was Chanel wanting to have her legacy be the woman who ended the war. And she thought she could talk to Churchill. Churchill had said, I'm never negotiating with Hitler. And Chanel thought, well, I can convince him about otherwise. So it's not as simple as her being a spy for the Germans. So let's uh, let's end, uh, Joya, with uh, her interrogation. How long did it take and what was the outcome? Well, it lasted apparently for just a couple of hours. No one knows for sure. And that... So can we even call that? I mean, two hours isn't really even an interrogation. It's a conversation, isn't it? Well, it was an interrogation. I mean, I imagine it in my book because nobody knows what happened. I imagine it as a battle of wits between the famously acerbic Chanel and these two hostile interrogators. And um, they let her go. And nobody knows why they let her go. A lot of people think that Churchill intervened. Well, how could <laughs> Churchill intervene with uh, SS, uh, SS officers in Germany, in France? I, I, wouldn't, I don't understand why or how he could. Well, he could have, I mean, Paris has been liberated by now. So he could have, she, she could have had her maid call his office and he Okay, could have, I, I understand. Somebody call, you know, and they could have called the FFI, you know, 
Another possibility is that Pierre Reverdy, who was in the resistance and probably had easier access to these people, could have called because um, he would have forgiven her anything. Or it's possible that they just let her go. You know, it's, it's completely unknown what happened, except that when she did get released, she skedaddled. She went to Switzerland and she stayed in exile for 10 years. She came back a couple of times, um, including once to uh, testify at the trial of a collaborator, the official trial of a collaborator, during which she lied. Um, and with no consequences, again. How much did these war years cast a shadow over the rest of Chanel's life? She, she lived quite a long time after the Second World War. She did, um, but I think, I think it, cost, it, it, was a it cast a terrible shadow. And when she went back to France to reopen her house, it was because the Wertheimers, largely because the Wertheimers were afraid that if she continued to badmouth them and sue them, and also she was badmouthing Chanel Number no. 5, which was their cash cow, because she was mad that she couldn't get it back. And so she was denigrating it. She had started producing perfumes to rival it from Switzerland. And they finally settled with her and paid her off, just paid her millions and millions of dollars and agreed to finance her fashion business to sort of quell any negative publicity about her that would really damage the brand. But when she opened, reopened her house in 1954, the French panned her first collection because they remembered how she behaved and they weren't ready to forgive her. But Americans who were largely ignorant of her personal life and certainly her behavior in the war embraced her return to fashion as the second coming of the fashion messiah. And it was the Americans that really made her come back, the big deal that it was. But I think the bar, the, the, I think she as a person has been, her legacy has been terribly tarnished by the way she behaved during the war. And, and, and rightly so, do you think? Oh, of course, yes. I mean, it was appalling. Um, Joya, finally, uh, very, very interesting book, Coco at the Ritz. For someone who's just picked this book up, what do you think they'll learn about moral ambiguity? And as you say, you're going to quoting Gide, most people are flotsam, jetsam in these grand historical events. We're not all quite as heroic or as evil as, as, as we'd like to think or as many people imagine. What, what, what does this book, Coco at the Ritz, tell us about the, the frailty of the human condition? Well, I think it's, it's a cautionary tale about the importance of standing against evil because it's so easy to turn away and to ignore what's going on and to not do it right and to tell yourself, to fool yourself that it's not really happening or that you can't do anything. So I would like people to read it that way, that, that it's important to stand against injustice when, it's, when you see it and to have the courage to do that. Well, that's good to hear. It's 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 a really interesting book, uh, Joya. Congratulations, Coco at the Ritz. It's just Thank out you. by Joya Diliberto, uh, both a, a fiction and non very distinguished fiction and nonfiction writer. Um, Joya, in addition to your new book, what else should people be reading in these morally ambiguous times? Well, I've been I've been reading a lot of wonderful novels recently, and they're novels that a lot of people have been reading. 
um, Intimacies by Katie Kitamura and uh, Beautiful World, Where Are You by Sally Rooney, The Great Circle. Um, you know, there are just so many wonderful books out now. Uh, Any nonfiction or fiction? Well, I've been reading all fiction recently, yes. Um, I hope you're going to come back to nonfiction, Joya. Yeah. We need you, the journalists like you, with a <laughs> A good feel. Um, did you learn anything about the form in this book? Did it make you long for nonfiction or are you more comfortable writing as a novelist? No, they're, they're both really hard. They're both really difficult. That's for sure. I think no, I think fiction's even harder than nonfiction, although I've, I've always wanted to write. Like so many nonfiction writers, I've always wanted to write <laughs> fiction and I can't. Uh, but maybe lots of fiction writers want to non write nonfiction and they can't. Well, it's like cross training, you know. You know, I think that fiction writing um, helps you in your scene writing and in being vivid and in character development. But then, writing nonfiction helps you in certainly in terms of research and um, maybe even in structure. Um, so I think that 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 I feel stronger as a writer for having done both. It is sort of like cross-training. Well, that, that certainly comes out of the book. You're a very strong writer, and Coco at the Ritz is, is a compelling read. It's a novel, but very much based on the real story of Coco Chanel's morally dubious behavior during the Second World War. So congratulations, uh, Joya Diliberto, on your new book, Coco at the Ritz. And I hope we'll have you back on the show with your next book. Maybe it'll be nonfiction, maybe it'll be fiction. But whatever it is, we'll have you back. Thank you again so much. Thank you, Andrew. That was a great pleasure. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the Keen On Show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keen On show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of of people with interesting new books and projects which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.